Hello and welcome to this soundbite from our second episode of our Construction Law Masters podcast series. This episode featured David Barry, delay expert and founder of BlackRock Expert Services. I am James Doe, partner at Herbert Smith Freehills and head of the contentious construction engineering practice in London. As part of my conversation with David, we discussed the key differences in approach to experts and expert evidence in litigation and arbitration. I hope you enjoy this podcast. For access to this and the other podcasts, articles and blog pieces on construction law and practice, please type into your browser www.hsfnotes.com backslash construction. We've talked about the different forums, arbitration, litigation, um, a little bit, but um, other than the procedural frameworks of those of those forums, um, what key differences um, do you perceive in the approach to experts and expert evidence as between litigation and arbitration? Uh, there's a quite a clear difference. I mean, the, you know, with with arbitrations being private and um, uh, in litigation being um, effectively the, the judgments from litigation being public and um, the risk of public censure for uh, for an expert who performs poorly, there's quite a different approach. I know many colleague experts who just don't and won't appear in, uh, in litigation. Um, there's many uh, examples of, of expert witnesses whose careers as experts have, have been ended by uh, by a judgment um, from from the Technology and Construction Court or the High Court, um, and therefore, um, what's good about litigation is that um, that has helped reform and improve the delivery of expert services. So I would suggest that there's a far greater compliance now with the duties of an expert in litigation than sometimes there is in arbitration. Um, I actually um, uh, spoke at a conference recently uh, about this very topic and one of the suggestions I made was that we should, places like the ICC or Trial should should find a way of maintaining the confidentiality of the parties and the issues within arbitration, but have some sort of public system associated with the performance of experts so that you get good behaviour um, within an arbitration community. Um, I think that would be a tremendous um, benefit to to the work that we do. Um, there's always been a tension between the manner in which an expert is engaged, um, you know, by the client who's paying the the expert's fees, and the expert's duties and responsibilities to the court and tribunal. And I, you know, perhaps that's why some experts have got themselves into a little bit of trouble because they've got slightly confused about their role and their responsibilities. I mean, what measures do you think you can be put in place to ensure that your independence as an expert is maintained or, or not compromised? So what we do uh, at my firm and BlackRock is we um, emphasize at the interview stage that this is how we will deliver this evidence and we'll even go far to say, if that's not what you want, um, you should choose someone else. Um, so that's a really important, because you can set the ground rules right at the beginning before appointment, that this is what you'll be providing and that will take away any irritation, hopefully. Well, not entirely, but when you produce a report that's um, that's not favorable um, on certain issues. Um, 
So that, that would be the, the number one factor. Uh, secondly, when we have a kickoff meeting for a new assignment, we make it very clear to the team um, about the, the tensions that exist on this job um, and the need for everybody to be objective uh, and conform to the independence requirements that we have. Um, I, I always look to engage positively with my opposing expert, um, which allows you to get a... Um, I think a significant, um, well, it's a significant opportunity to allow you to ensure balance by making sure that you're hearing their point of view and taking account of it. Um, we have reviews, we have peer reviews, which we, we deploy um, within our office. At the end of the day, I'm the person who has to own the report that I sign. And so you personally have to be comfortable with every sentence you write in there at the end of the day. And that is the, the great kind of safety net of everything that you do, that you're comfortable that this represents uh, your view. And I do oftentimes ask myself, you know, if I was appointed by the other party, would I have formed the same view? Um, and that's an important consideration as well. A sort of test of your own conclusions. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, objectively, is this a valid and fair and reasonable conclusion? And have you found clients uh, struggling with that? Um, some yeah. so, with that so, approach. So yes, um, I've I, I guess I've I found clients who struggle with it and um, uh, and find it difficult, particularly if they've paid a large amount of money for an analysis by by an expert, that um, the the results aren't favourable or more favourable. Um, I also found clients who greatly appreciate this approach, um, and um, I've I've got a I've got a term um, which I use in the office, which is bad news is always good advice. Um, you don't like to give your clients bad news; that's just a natural human um, tendency. So when you do, it tends to be very well thought out and double checked. Um, People tend to pick up the phone immediately with good news to tell a client um, and be less quick to do it with bad news and maybe double check and triple check what you've done. And so as a rule, generally, you'll find that um, serious and mature clients who will understand that if you're giving them this kind of news, that it's well thought through and, and, and it's probably correct. Yeah, that's my experience as well yeah. um, when it comes to legal challenges and issues that uh, you're nervous about giving them the bad news you don't want to be giving them the bad news but uh, it's worth it's worth going through of course because um, as soon as you can because very often as you say they're grateful is it right okay well we better try and settle this case or we better try and um, do something or we, we're going to adopt a different strategy to the case now that we know that we have challenges um, we've talked earlier about information and data being critical to delay analysis. Um, whilst the ways in which clients and their lawyers manage information and data will differ depending on the project and the dispute, are there any general good practices that you would generally advocate for from the perspective of the expert in terms of document management, information management, presentation of information? Um, generally, the the use of software um, such as Relativity for document management is very helpful. Um, things like Magnum at the trial stage have been incredibly helpful as well. Um, 
the, the biggest tip that I'd have to um, to a team embarking on a major arbitration is the, the document file naming is crucial. And I'd always suggest that it be led by date um, because that removes duplication. Uh, the amount of times I've been involved in major um, disputes where you know the, the claimant's documents have a C and the defendant's document or the respondent's documents have an OR and um, you know documents to do with programming have a P and documents to do with quantum have a Q and uh, and what you end up with is massive duplication um, because lots of documents have to do with lots of different things um, um, and you can you can miss stuff uh, as well whereas if you approach a chronological naming system um, you will tend to have a complete unduplicated system but also something that you go to in a very quick moment to find a document you know if I'm if I'm looking for a particular document on a job that's not recorded by time and I have to look in and find C X dash zero 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 four two five PL two, which of all codes which mean something. Whereas I know it's the minutes of meetings for the fourteenth of January two thousand and fifteen, um, I can immediately hone in on that section of the database. So that that I'd say is the biggest tip that I'd have. Um, I think all lawyers should manage their um, case database, document case database, primarily by the date first. By all means, add codes later down the the chain for um, for subjects. But I think coding by by date would be a very great step forward. I completely agree with that. I mean, since the beginning of my career, chronologies, um, sorting documents by date, uh, is critical because you find that the the important issues bunch around key meetings, key bits of correspondence, key reports, key events that happen on certain dates. So if there's anything, anything about those events is likely to be equally bunched around it actually occurring. So you meet, you have a meeting on a certain date and then the follow-up correspondence follows immediately beyond, you know, after that for the next few weeks. So uh, I think chronologies are, and, and organizing your documents in a chronological way rather than subject, yeah. uh, rather by subject is, is really important. Um, hot tubbing is a uh, hot topic <laughs> or has been in the, in the past. Um, what are your views on that? What are your views on concurrent, I think the technical term is concurrent uh, expert uh, cross-examination? So, um, I've, I've found it to be generally very effective um, uh, and very useful. Um, I've, I've participated uh, sitting right there in the hot tub and I've also been on a tribunal where we've had uh, hot tubbing. And uh, in every instance, I've generally found it to be a positive thing. Um, not least because, you know, as opposed to having a delay expert come in for Tuesday and the fo his opponent be on on Wednesday and just making sure that we're talking about exactly the same point, you can really hone in when you've got them both there together and you can ask Mr. Smith, what does he think of Mr. Jo what Mr. Jones just said? So that can be very effective. Mm -hmm. I know lawyers, James, get nervous because there's a loss of control. 
and they, they do hate to see as the as the uh, as the experts and tribunal take over and they have to sit on their hands and watch um, uh, nervously as to what's going on but I do think it's a, it's a positive and productive way and it, it, it actually works mm-hmm. both when you have two sensible experts who've done a good job and an objective job as well as when you've got a situation where maybe one of them hasn't been that way because it becomes fairly obvious um, quickly in a um, in a hot tub. I mean from an advocate's perspective I find that the level of preparation that you need to do is the same you have to be prepared to cross-examine in in the traditional way um, but where it is useful I think as an advocate is that if the other side's expert gives you an answer to a question which you weren't expecting. Um, obviously, you're trying to control the expert witness to give you, you know, a sort of yes/no answer. Or, you know, ideally, but often, you know, that isn't always the case. However hard you try, so you get an answer you don't really expect. It, it's it's maybe a little bit off piste. Um, you can then go to your own expert and and say, well, Mr. X has said this. Um, what's your view on that? And, and get an immediate um, response mm. to, to that. Um, as you say, you lose control a little bit, but on the other hand, it keeps the whole thing um, on topic and, you, and you're able to react in real time to these types of, of issues rather than having to go off at the lunch break and ask your expert if you can, well, what did he mean when he said that? Yeah. Um, I think uh, And then go back with another set of questions. Uh, and the tribunal can do the same. They can say, well, I'm not quite sure I follow now what's going on. Yeah. Can you give us some clarification? It's uh, from the other expert. You know, How does that play in with your analysis, Ms. I mean, Mr. Barry? Yeah. We, we, we are there as experts to, to help the tribunal. And it seems to me that the question of concurrent evidence really does, in general, help the tribunal. And they've got, the, they've got really the decision to make about whether they want it or not. Um, It'd be unusual indeed for for counsel or parties to say absolutely not. Um, I've never experienced that. If a tribunal really wants it, they usually get it. And um, most tribunals that I've seen who've deployed it have found it helpful. And certainly the ones I've been on the tribunal, I found it helpful. Have you found the tribunals take a proactive role in the hot tub, or or have they just let opposing counsel do their normal cross examination and then maybe interject? At, at certain points, I mean, in that sense, it's not that different from a from a normal cross examination in terms of the role of the tribunal. They're just getting both experts in the room together at the same time. What's your What's your experience? Proactive tribunal or sort of passive tribunal with a hot tub? Uh, my sense is for a hot tub um, to be effective, the tribunal needs to be prepared. In in some ways, not unlike the preparation you as counsel do, they really have to have a plan of what they're after. Um, and um, and think about the questioning. I know, uh, in a oftentimes sitting as a DAB member, you don't have the benefit of cross examination, but you do have the benefit of expert evidence, uh, and oftentimes in a hot tub. Um, and the only way to do that effectively is to prepare properly to question people, um, and that's that that places a far greater burden on the tribunal members than just sitting there watching counsel um, elicit the points that are important. You've really got to do the work and the prep if you're going to have a hot tub and a dab be successful in my view.
Um, moving on to the future of the dispute expert industry, um, there are a set of top names, you're one of them in the industry, um, with lots of grey hair. Uh, what steps are you taking to bring on the younger generation of data experts? Because obviously clients gravitate to experience um, uh, and skill. How do you bring on the younger generation when clients are sort of saying, well, have they got what it takes to, to deliver for us in this case? Um, well, you know, we, we focus a lot on that um, and um, we will uh, obviously have various internal training programs. We'll also have, um, we'll make sure that that people who are showing the, the potential um, get to work with um, a lot of different experts so they get to see different approaches and different applications and so on. Um, we, one great benefit of the 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 housing and the housing act is that um is that adjudication actually oftentimes provides these small smaller um dispute uh, and expert witness testimony opportunities so you do have much better than it used to be you've got an opportunity to get um some good experience in a quasi hearing that you will have on an adjudication for an expert a young expert to give evidence that's useful we we're, we're very um, keen to bring our experts along to meetings and to hearings and to see things in action. Uh, the more senior the the person who's your main assistant will often get great exposure to to counsel to um, instructing solicitors to, to to clients and other experts anyway, and oftentimes you'll find that um, some confidence grows in. In, in council and solicitors as to the quality of this person and they start to trust that this person could deal with aspects. Uh, another another element that we've had some success with is on bigger complex jobs with multi-facets. Um, we've had two experts, so I might deal with the majority of the case, but there's a component of the case that, uh, that uh, an assistant might deal with the in, you know, in their own in their own voice and in their own um, uh, signed um, sub-report, that particular element, that's another great opportunity to get some experience. Um, at the end of the day, it takes lawyers like yourself to trust that this is um, the right person. Until you're caught, until you're that deer in the headlights, <laughs> um, there's always the concern that you'll, um, you'll find it a frightening place to be. Um, but I think... Um, as I say internally, if you if you do the work and you're honest, you should have nothing to be afraid of. So, because of course the the ultimate test of an expert is um, being cross examined in front of a senior tribunal by a top advocate. Yeah. How how do you prepare them for that? It's a pretty it's a unique experience, and uh, you can be as smart as you like, you can be as well prepared as you like, but but uh, when it comes to that, that crucible, um, there, there isn't, you know, I mean, it, it's a different experience uh, and it really tests experts, it can do. How do you prepare them for that? So uh, you, you give them a place to run to and that's their report. I mean, that is the key point. You've got your report, it's the one document you will almost certainly have in front of you. Um, and so having a report that's um, clear, um, is supported, a, a, you know, a, a liberal use of footnotes and references, 
those are all things that provide you some assistance when you're under fire in a, in a cross-examination. And again, um, if you have a fact-based approach to, to lay analysis, facts are stubborn, they're very difficult even for the most skilled counsel to, um, to, to trouble an expert with um, if you've got your facts right. And um, if, you, if you're objectively um, reporting on those facts and coming to conclusions that are sustainable and reasonable, you should be able to withstand it. It's still an intimidating um, thing for anybody to do. Even an experienced expert is going to be nervous facing up to um, a, a top quality counsel in, in the setting that you've described. Um, I have to say, um, I see it as a, as a great challenge and something enjoyable um, in, a, in a perverse kind of way. But um, um, we also, when we're identifying people that in our in our office, for instance, that are, have the potential to be experts, we are examining those personal skills, which um, communication, listening skills are crucially important, um, and, um, and and general integrity. Um, all of those things provide a, a package to allow you to launch that person into that um, that setting you've described. Mm-hmm with some degree of confidence, but it will be like jumping into a, an ice bath. There will be a shock to the system the first time you do it. What about the presentation of evidence by two experts at the same time? So not hot tubbing, but two experts on the same side from the same, from the same shop giving evidence on, a, on an arbitration. Starting to see a lot more of that. Which, yeah. Which is, so quite a, from my perspective, it's quite a quite a new development, but uh, it seems to be happening more and more. How, what, do you, what are your views on that? I think that's a phenomenal um, uh, development, and I think it's a perfect training ground where you can let them have maybe not the most challenging component of the dispute or the um, to deal with something, um, uh, and they can get their feet wet and understand what it's like both presenting to a tribunal and being cross-examined, but on a component or a portion of the case that's a great idea um, because uh, we've, we've certainly done that in our in some of our cases and the the lawyers have become confident that they'll be they can do a bit more or indeed they can do the whole thing um, down the road so I, I, I'd encourage more of that if possible it's frustrating when you you're, you get inquiries into your practice which is it's got to be it's got to be John he's got to be we've got to have him you know we really think that um, there has to be more opportunity for um, for younger people to um, to assist.